I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 16. We're going to return one final time to this chapter to consider this morning the blessings of household baptism. We see two right here in the text, and um, we have sang from a number of the psalms of God's faithfulness to his people, to us and our children, to our children's children, to many generations. And we're going to see this morning the way in which God's covenantal dealings with his people are consistent both in the old covenant administration and the new covenant administration of the one covenant of grace. We see that here in the household of Lydia and the household of the Philippian jailer. And boys and girls, I want to particularly encourage you to give your attention this morning to the Word of God because we're going to focus on the blessings of household baptism. I want you to hear this morning the way in which God is oriented toward you as he has made you members of his covenant people. Well, let's give our careful attention to the word of God. We'll begin the reading at verse 11 and read down through verse 34. And as we attend to the word of God, let us remember that it is living and active. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. 
But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Amen. This is the word of God. Well, over the last few weeks, we have considered the way in which the gospel powerfully invaded the lives of three individuals. And in two of these, we have also read of how their entire households were baptized. While I touched on those baptisms briefly in each respective text, I wanted to return to consider these household baptisms in greater detail. You see, there are five references in the New Testament to household baptisms. Four of them occur here in the book of Acts and the other in Paul's uh, opening chapter to his first letter to the Corinthians. Of the four that occur here in the book of Acts, two are right here in Acts 16. And of all the references to household baptism, these two provide the greatest detail. Now, greatest detail does not necessarily mean great detail, just that there's more detail here than at the other places. So what are we to make of household baptisms? How do we see how these fit within the greater story of redemptive history? And what do household baptisms have to do with us today? Well, as Reformed Presbyterians, we practice household baptism. We believe that when somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they are to be baptized. And if that person has a family or if that person has a household, then all of the members of that household are also to be baptized. Here in Acts 16, we read of just that. Lydia, her heart was opened by God to pay attention to the gospel as Paul preached it, and she came to saving faith, and so she was baptized. But then so too was her whole household. Similarly, the Philippian jailer, he came trembling with fear before Paul and Silas. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The answer gloriously given, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Well, the text tells us that the Philippian jailer believed. It ends by telling us that he rejoiced with his whole household that he had believed in God. He rejoiced, he was baptized, and in his household with him as well. When you consider these baptisms within the framework of God's covenantal dealings with his people, throughout the scriptures you can see and appreciate the many blessings of household baptism. And so this morning, I am not aiming to give a comprehensive defense of household baptism. Instead, we are going to consider some of the blessings of household baptism as they're on display here in Acts chapter 16. Now that said, if these examples, if our consideration this morning creates more questions for you, simply bring them to me. I would love to consider them with you together. So what are these blessings of household baptism? When Lydia believed and was baptized, what blessings followed her home? 
And when the Philippian jailer believed and was baptized, what blessings were bestowed on his entire household because of his newfound faith? Well, this morning we're going to consider three blessings. Here is the first. Let's consider first the blessing of belonging. The blessing of belonging. Here in our text, God opens Lydia's heart to hear and to believe the gospel. Same with the Philippian jailer. God blessed so that he too believed. The gospel powerfully and savingly invaded both hearts and lives. So what impact did this then have for their households? How did their newfound faith in Jesus Christ impact their respective families? Did the good news of Jesus Christ suddenly divide their households? Was Lydia on one side of her household and the others on the other? Was the Philippian jailer suddenly isolated from the rest of his family? We could ask the question from the perspective of the rest of the family. Was the rest of Lydia's household now detached from her? Was the Philippian jailer's family suddenly separated from him? Well, asking these questions brings us to another. How does God ordinarily work? How does God usually work in this world and among his people? Well, to begin with, we can see that throughout Scripture and throughout redemptive history, God ordinarily works through families. Broadly, we see this principle at work from the very beginning. Adam's sin obviously impacted him, his immediate family, and then all of his posterity as well. We could think about Noah and the way in which his family was saved from the flood because they went into the ark with him. Negatively, in Numbers 16, we see entire households, the households of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, impacted by the sins of the heads of those households. And so broadly and generally, we can see throughout Scripture that God ordinarily works through families. Now, this is not to say that God doesn't also work ordinarily through individuals. You can see that throughout the scriptures as well. We don't need to pit these two as if it's one or the other. God works both through families and in the lives of individuals. Now, more specifically, we need to examine how God relates to his people. As I have mentioned many times before, God always relates to people by way of covenant. He doesn't relate to anyone outside of some sort of covenant. The covenant of works was broken by Adam, and immediately God then established the covenant of grace. And every man, woman, or child relates to God by way of one of these covenants. Right after the fall, Genesis 3.15, God promises a Savior who would fulfill the covenant. And everything that we read in the scriptures thereafter is an unfolding of that covenant of grace. We might think back to our scripture reading in the book of Hebrews from a few weeks ago. In Hebrews chapter 4, it spoke of Moses being a servant in the household of God, and then comparing Moses to Jesus who served as the son of God in that household. Well, what's the point? Part of the point is there's one house. There's one covenant of grace. Moses served as a servant where Jesus served as the son and so as we read the scriptures, we see that the one covenant of grace unfolds through related administrations. The old covenant was an administration of the covenant of grace. The new covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace. And the substance of both administrations is the same. Jesus is the substance of both 
covenants. The covenant of grace is God's perfect plan to save a people for himself. The old covenant anticipated that promised Messiah who would come and save a people to himself. In the old covenant, believers were looking forward to the promised Christ. Well, in the new covenant, we do the same, only we look backwards. We look back to that Messiah because he has come. Well, in the old covenant, there were two sacraments for the administration of the covenant of grace. Circumcision and Passover. Circumcision was the sign and seal of entrance into the covenant people of God. Passover was the sign and seal of one's continuance within the covenant people of God. We could think of circumcision as the sign and seal of redemption applied. Circumcision was anticipating not only a circumcised flesh, but also a circumcised heart. Passover was the sign and seal of redemption accomplished. So what does all of this have to do with belonging? Well, in Romans 4, Paul teaches us that circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness that he had, that Abraham had by faith. It's the righteousness of Christ. And when we go back to Genesis 17, we see that Abraham was commanded to apply that sign that he received to his whole household as well, irrespective of whether or not one had faith. So Ishmael received the sign of the covenant, and we know that later he broke covenant with God. When Isaac was born, he received the sign at eight days, and he was blessed with the substance of that covenant of grace. He was blessed with faith in that promised Messiah. So in the old covenant administration of the covenant of grace, the sign and seal of Christ's righteousness was applied to a believer and then to the household as well. Because Adam believed, or I'm sorry, because Abraham believed, his whole household were made members of that covenant people of God. His family was marked out of this world as belonging to God and belonging to the people, the covenant people of God. Listen to the language of Genesis 17. There God gives Abraham the sign of circumcision. He says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and your offspring after you. You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, throughout their generations. You shall be circumcised and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So what does this have to do now with the new covenant? Well, at least two things here need to be mentioned. First of all, remember the language of Romans 4. There God's word tells us that Abraham's circumcision was a sign and seal of what? Sometimes you'll hear folks sometimes say or even imply that circumcision was a sign and seal of Abraham's faith. But that's not what the word of God says. Instead, Romans 4 teaches us that circumcision was a sign and seal of Christ's righteousness, that That righteousness that Abraham received by faith. In other words, it was a sign and seal of Christ's righteousness, which was imputed to Abraham, and he received it through the gift of faith. So, that sign and seal of the covenant was not always tied to faith. Abraham received that sign after he had faith, but then he was commanded to apply it to his household, irrespective of faith. Second, it needs to be noted that Paul in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, 
He ties old covenant circumcision to new covenant baptism. Now, to be clear, when Paul is talking about circumcision and baptism here, he is speaking about the spiritual realities of each. But the correspondence, the connection, the tie between the two is clear. It is undeniable. Listen to what Paul writes there in Colossians 2. He's writing to new covenant believers and he says, In him, that's Christ, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Here these people are asking, what do you mean? How have I been circumcised? Well, Paul goes on, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So right there in Colossians 2, we have a clear connection, a clear correspondence communicated to us by God between that old covenant sign of circumcision and its new covenant counterpart, baptism. So third, when Peter preached that powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost, he intentionally took up that language of belonging. Peter loved that language of belonging And he was very intentional to take it up again, to communicate it there on the day of Pentecost. He said, and the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The first blessing that we see here in household baptism is that blessing of belonging. When Lydia returned to her household, she went with those promises that were not only for her, but for her family as well. When the Philippian jailer believed upon Christ, the nature of the covenant and its glorious promises, they went home with him. His household, Lydia's household, both were marked out as belonging to the covenant people of God. Now, to be clear, the text does not add whether or not any of the members of each household believed. Some may have believed, but the text doesn't add any more detail there. All the text says is that Lydia and the jailer believed. So does this fit now with the administration of the covenant of grace? Well, I want you to think about Jesus' words as they're found in John 15. In John chapter 15, Jesus tells us that he is the vine and his father is the vine dresser. And there he explains that there are branches who bear no fruit and will therefore be removed and cut off. They will be removed from being, in a sense, in Jesus. Whereas those that bear fruit will be pruned so that they will bear more fruit. So we have to think here. In what sense was Jesus saying that, those, that there could be people who are in him that could also be removed. Well, there is a certain sense that Jesus was talking about and another sense that he was not. Jesus is here, there in, in, in John 15. He is not talking in the sense of those who have the true spiritual realities of the covenant of grace. Once you are united to Jesus Christ by faith, you cannot be removed from him. So there must be another sense in which Jesus is talking about those who could be removed. What is that sense? Well, there is a helpful distinction that we need to make. You can hear 
As you consider the words of Christ there, a distinction between the administration of the covenant of grace and the essence of the covenant of grace. Both in the old covenant and in the new covenant, there is an administration of the one covenant of grace. And it has always been believers and their children. The essence of the covenant of grace is the true reality that that covenant administration is aimed at, that true spiritual union with Jesus Christ. The essence of the covenant of grace belongs, as we see throughout all of the pages of Scripture, it belongs only to those who have true faith in Christ. So in summary, the first blessing of household baptism is the blessing of belonging. Both the believer and their household belong in a certain sense to God and to the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace. In this way, we belong as families to God. In this way, our children are blessed with belonging instead of dealing with a sense of division In this way, we can teach our children to truly call upon our God as their God. So the first blessing of household baptism is that blessing of belonging. So what is the second? Well, the second is the blessing of promise. The blessing of promise. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached to a primarily Jewish audience, again saying, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Well, I want you to hear how Peter's carefully chosen words correspond to some of his favorite words found in Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, God gives Abraham the covenant sign of circumcision. And notice the same three categories that Peter preaches about in Acts 2. They are found there in God's promises in Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, And as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money or from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. When Peter is preaching to this primarily Jewish audience on the day of Pentecost, he is careful to use language that will represent the same realities of the old covenant to these new covenant believers. Why? Well, to bring the same promise into this final administration of the covenant of grace. And when those Jews heard Peter's words on the day of Pentecost, their ears perk up and catch that intentional repetition of these categories. So just as in the old covenant, the children of believers are in the new covenant recipients of the gospel promise made personal. Romans 4 is careful to explain to us that Abraham received the sign of the covenant as a seal of Christ's righteousness that he had by faith. 
God gave Abraham a tangible sign of Christ's righteousness to authenticate that gospel promise that Abraham had already believed. But then Abraham was instructed to apply that same sign and seal to all of the male members of his household. Well, what, because this, why, why is it that this is how God works out his covenant? Well, the simple answer is because this is God's design. That is the answer. God has always designed to work through families. When the gospel comes in power into the heart, that same gospel promise is then gloriously extended to every member of his household. And that is what we see beautifully recorded here in Acts 16. The gospel came in power to Lydia's heart. And because of God's good design in the covenant of grace, she was able with confidence to take that gospel promise to her whole household in a way in which God then spoke personal promises, those personal promises of gospel grace to everyone in her home. The same thing for the Philippian jailer. The text tells us explicitly that he and his household rejoiced that he had believed in God. Well, the gospel promise that he believed in was gloriously then given to every member of his household too. So what does the sign of the covenant say? This sign, circumcision and baptism, for both, the substance of the promise is the same. Both of these are signs of Christ's righteousness. Both signs set forth forth the promise of the gospel along with the threat or curse that comes if one were to reject it. Circumcision says, believe upon the promised Messiah and you will be saved. Circumcision said, Jesus would come to be cut off for you. We might think about how the garden, when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, it was protected by a flaming sword so that no one could come and take hold of the tree of life. If a sinner tried to re-enter, they would certainly be cut off. Well, circumcision anticipates the way in which Jesus would come to be cut off for his people so that they then could enter in and eat from the tree of life. The same thing is true here for baptism. Baptism says, believe upon Christ and you will be washed clean from your sins. The converse is also true. There is a warning in baptism. It says, if you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, You will receive judgment. You will be washed away for your sins as if in the floodwaters of judgment. So this promise goes to the one who has believed and receives the sign and to his or her children as well. Now I want to show you two more textual parallels that are very helpful to see this correspondence between the two covenants. First of all, a text that you are all very familiar with, the Great Commission. After Jesus rose from the grave and before he ascended on high, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. Notice the order there given to us in the Great Commission. Discipleship begins with baptism, and then discipleship and teaching follows. 
Everyone agrees about how this should happen for Lydia and for the jailer because they believe they are baptized and then the discipleship process begins. So what about their households? Well, when we go back to Genesis 17 and 18, there we read of the very same promise, or I'm sorry, the pattern of the Great Commission in the Old Testament. We read of the same pattern in the Old Covenant administration as we do in the New Covenant administration. In Genesis 17, God gave Abraham the covenant sign, and he had him apply it to his household. But then in Genesis 18, God goes on to tell of how Abraham was then to instruct or disciple his household according to the application of that sign. Why? So that they may know and understand that gospel promise and come to a true saving faith in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. Listen to the words of Genesis 18. This is verses 17 through 19. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the promise, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Brothers and sisters, that is the great commission in the Old Testament. That is the great commission in that Old Covenant administration, and it parallels and corresponds to the great commission now in the New Testament or in the New Covenant. Now notice how that pattern then applies in the homes of Lydia and the jailer. Abraham received the sign, I'm sorry, yeah, Abraham received the sign of, of, of the covenant because of his belief. He applied it to his children, and then he was diligent to go and to teach his, children's, his children the way of the Lord, that they might come to faith, that he might receive what he has promised. Well, the same thing is happening here in Acts 16. Acts 16, two households received the sign of the covenant because of the presence of a believer in that home, and they are then to take those promises and to teach them diligently to their children. That brings me to the second textual correspondence or parallel. Listen again to the words of Genesis 18, 19. There again it says, For I have chosen him, that's Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. What is your relationship to Abraham? In the new covenant, what is your relationship to Abraham? Is God still being faithful to his promise to Abraham? Well, in Galatians 3, 7, Paul says that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. He says the same thing at the end of that chapter, saying that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So what does this mean? Well, it means that believers in the new covenant are truly sons of Abraham. This affirms that we and Abraham believe the very same gospel. We have the same faith in Christ. But 
it also means that we are blessed to be a part of God's grand promise to Abraham in raising our children in light of gospel promises. Just as our father Abraham did, we too are to apply the sign of the covenant to our households and then instruct them in the ways of the Lord. Why? So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Remember that God's promise to Abraham was that through his seed, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Well, in the new covenant administration of the same covenant of grace, the children of believers receive the blessings of the promise. And then every time that one of our children comes to true saving faith, whenever the Holy Spirit sovereignly gives faith and one of ours embraces the promise and they embrace Jesus Christ, what we witness is God's continuing faithfulness to that promise that he made to Abraham. Well, that brings us to the final blessing we'll consider this morning. And that is the blessing of presence. The blessing of presence. This doesn't happen often, but every once in a while, I will get a phone call or an email from somebody who has no association with our church, and they will ask me if I can baptize, or if I will baptize their children. Usually, it has something to do with the person believing, well, baptism must be good in some way. So will you please baptize my children? They have very little understanding about it. They just think some way, in some general way, this must be a good thing. Now, when this happens, I take time to get to know that person. I try to understand where they're coming from. And then I try to teach them what the Word of God says about baptism. But all of this is to say that baptism is not some service that the church provides to the broader public. No, baptism is a sign of the covenant for believers and their children, which means baptism is only applied where there is first a credible profession of faith before then it is applied to one's household as well, which means household baptism always brings with it the presence of one who makes a credible profession of faith. Household baptism brings the presence of one, as far as we can see, who has true saving faith. And this, once again, is the biblical pattern. We've already seen it in Abraham. He believed the promise of the Messiah. He believed he was saved, and so he received the sign of the covenant. He applied it to his household. And then that great work of gospel ministry to his own family began. That baptism was not the end of the work. It was the beginning of it. After his household received the sign, Abraham set out upon that work of instructing and discipling his household in the hope and expectation of God's faithfulness to his promise to him and to his children. Well, we know that one of those sons, Ishmael, rejected the promise. Another, Isaac, according to God's sovereign plan, embraced the promise and he laid hold of Abraham's God as his own God through the promise of the Messiah. We don't know about the other members of Abraham's family, but we can see in Abraham the blessing of that presence. Abraham modeled new life in the promised Messiah. He walked by faith. He clinged to the promises of God. He obeyed God's commands. He trembled before God's warning. And he showed his household what it looks like in the language of Romans 4 to walk the footsteps of faith. 
Well, that's what we see going on in Acts 16. Lydia's household was blessed to see the presence of one who had a true saving faith. God had indeed opened her heart to believe the gospel. She believed, and when the gospel promise went home with her, the power and the presence of the gospel was there in Lydia's life of faith. And so as Lydia discipled her home, every day she was witnessing to the power and the veracity of the gospel of Jesus Christ as she too followed in the footsteps of faith. The same thing is true for the Philippian jailer. He believed in God and the sign of God's promise was applied to him and his whole household. And as he was given new life in Christ, his family was blessed with the presence of that new life each and every day. Not only would the jailer's household hear of the gospel, they would see the gospel's powerful working in the life of the jailer. Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman. How did her newfound faith uh, start to transform her life to where she laid up treasures in heaven instead of here on earth? Well, her household saw her immediately imploring Paul and Silas to come and stay with her. She was insistent to show hospitality. The jailer was once a man hardened by the realities of war. So how did his family witness him change in his care of and witness to those whom he was ordered to keep? Well, they saw that change happening right away. How so? Well, he brought Paul and Silas home with him. He washed their wounds. He set food before them. And he was suddenly really concerned with his family. He wanted Paul and Silas to preach the gospel to them. So the blessing of household baptism comes with the blessing of presence. So parents, as those who have been blessed with faith in Christ, I want you to see today how God's covenant dealings give you every confidence to earnestly take that gospel that you love to each member of your household. See how God's plan gives you a sure foundation to bring that Savior that you love to your children. See how they can take the word and say, you can take the word to them and say, God has promised to be a God to me and to my children. So I want you, child, to lay a hold of him by faith. And then children, see the blessings of your baptism. See the way in which God has marked you out as belonging to him. When you are here, you belong here. You belong to God and you belong to him as his covenant people. God has placed his name upon you. And in placing his name upon you, he has given you personally the promise of the gospel. He has given you a tangible, personalized promise. And he has even given you in that promise a warning that is a loving warning intended to drive you to himself. And he has blessed you with the presence of faith in your parents so that they will be diligent to daily instruct you in the truths of the gospel and then to model for you the footsteps of faith. Well, these are the blessings that come because of household baptism. So let us give thanks to God for these manifold blessings. Let's pray together.
Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for the truths of your word. Lord God, we thank you for what we see here in Acts chapter 16 and the blessings that you give to us when you bring faith in Christ to a home. Lord God, we pray that we might appreciate the real blessing of belonging to you, not just as individuals, but also as families. Lord, we pray that you might impress upon our children that great blessing that they have in their baptisms, having been marked out, having been uh, recipients of your name, having your name placed upon them, and being marked out as no longer belonging to this world, but belonging to you, the living God. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for that blessing that is found in, your, in the presence that you provide in each believing home, in each covenant home. Lord, we pray for those who have that true saving faith and who are raising their families, that you might bless us with diligence, not only to teach gospel truths to our families, but to model well what it looks like to walk in the footsteps of our father Abraham. Lord God, we thank you for uh, these blessings Lord God, we thank you for these, and we ask that you would impress them upon us. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in our homes. We pray that you might bring the realities of these things promised, that we would not rest in simply the administration of the covenant, but that we would seek the true essence of your covenant promises, that each of us might have that true saving faith. Lord God, will you guard our children as those who have a great birthright given to them as the children of believers, those who are holy, will you please guard them that they may not be like Esau who despised his birthright in favor of the things of this world. Instead, Lord God, will you give them faith to behold Jesus Christ as that great treasure, as the one who is worthy of giving up everything. Lord, only you can give that sight. Only you, by faith, can cause one to see and to embrace Christ. And so we pray that you would do this for each and every one of our children. Lord, you have made promises to us to be a God to us and to our children. And we ask, Lord God, that you would be faithful to those promises according to your sovereign plan. As we pray this now in Jesus' name, amen.